A daylight journey into the city. The ruins of the houses appeared through the smoke screens in the harbor. Birds chased the wave tops in search of fish, but they had all left the bay for the open sea. A sea of flame enveloped the city. Half-submerged ships rose above the water, their holds still full of cargoes of the dead, the bay their graveyard. A large ship was capsized, barnacles showing on the bottom. Another ship was full of jagged holes where birds took refuge. Naval ships, barges, small ships, floating derricks showed their masts above the water level. A tanker was cut in two. These are the words of Boris Voyetkov, a Soviet journalist who was in Sevastopol in May and June 1942 and witnessed the immense German offensive to capture the storied city. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. This is Episode 27, The Battle of Sevastopol, Part 1. Podcasting to you today from the Redbeard Studio on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin territory, also called Ottawa, Canada. Now, before I go any further, I'd like to give you a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, you can support it through Patreon. Any contribution at all gives you advance notice of episodes, plus bonus episodes for patrons only about the wars leading up to the German invasion of 1941, like the uh, invasion of Poland and the Winter War in Finland, as well as intriguing personalities like Georgi Zhukov and Konstantin Rokossovsky. Just search for me or Beyond Barbarossa on Patreon, or visit beyondbarbarossa.ca and click on the Patreon link in the banner. This is episode 27, part one of the description of the second siege of Sevastopol by the Germans during World War II. Last episode, I discussed the German planning for Foul Blau, Operation Blue, the Germans' summer 1942 offensive campaign that was designed as a drive to the Caucasus oil fields east of the Black Sea. Now, in this campaign, Crimea was key because it's in the way. It's between German-occupied Eastern Europe and that objective of the Caucasus oil fields, especially Crimea's best port, Sevastopol, the base of the Soviet and earlier Russian Black Sea Fleet. Sevastopol was also a major air base from which the Red Air Force had launched bombing raids on Ploisti, Romania in 1941. This is Germany's main source of all-important oil. So this episode, we're going to focus on another fall. So within Fall Blau, we talk about the fall of Sevastopol. 
Now, um, just to recap the battle for Crimea. That began on September 11th, 1941, always an auspicious date. On that day, the German 54th Corps of the 11th Army began its drive toward the Perekop Isthmus, the northern entrance to the Crimean Peninsula. So that's that narrow land bridge uh, that connected the Crimean Peninsula to the mainland of Ukraine. Now, historically, that's been an important area because a narrow land bridge is easy, theoretically anyway, to defend. And there was the uh, Turkish wall that the so-called, that the Ottomans had erected centuries before this conflict. And that was across the Ismuth at its narrowest point at Perkop. And of course, the Germans kn knew they needed Crimea. And so they launched an attack on that with a lot of armor and artillery. On the second day of their attack on Crimea, so that would be September 12th of 1941, General Eugen Ritter von Schobert, commander of the 11th Army, was killed when his plane landed in a, a minefield near Mykolaiv, Ukraine, which is north of Crimea. As a result, uh, Eric von Manstein was appointed to command the army of the 11th Army. He's been called by several uh, historians as Hitler's best general. And as testimony to that, he will later, then what we're talking about now, he will later get promoted to field marshal. By the end of October 1941, the Germans were well into Crimea, heading down the main road to Sevastopol. By the 3rd of November, they'd reached the first circle of defenses around the city. At the same time, the Luftwaffe was bombing the harbor, and Romanian naval forces were attacking Soviet shipping. Between the 17th of December and the 24th, the Germans and Romanians made a concerted attack on the city of Sevastopol, but didn't manage to take it. It remained, at least for a little while, the only part of Crimea not under German control. Then on 26 December, the Soviets tried their first ever amphibious operation from the Taman Peninsula on Kerch. It failed to capture this easternmost city in Crimea, but that didn't stop Crimean front, the Crimean Front, which is a group of armies, under Lieutenant General Dmitry Kozlov, from trying again and again and again and again and again. In January of 1942 and then February, March twice and April, failing every time, losing hundreds of thousands of men as well as thousands of tanks, planes, guns, and other resources. So that brings us up to April 1942. The Soviets have a tiny toehold at the end of the Kerch Peninsula, and they're still holding Sevastopol, which is at the other extremity, the western extremity of the, the peninsula. So then, as part of the preparations for Fall Blau, or Operation Blue, the German drive further to the east in the summer of 1942, General von Manstein launched Operation Trappenjagd, or Bustard Hunt, in early May, which trapped and destroyed the remnants of three Soviet armies around Kerch. So they 
drove them out or captured the Soviet forces, solidified their hold on the eastern extremity of Crimea. That left Sevastopol as the last and the most important target in Crimea. So von Mansin was determined to take the city, as was Hitler, because Hitler had realized that, uh, yeah, with those bombing raids, this was the aircraft carrier, the land aircraft carrier for air fleets that could, if in Soviet hands, really oppose the Germans' advances. If in German hands, it could be an important airbase as well as naval port. So, Manstein had to take Sevastopol. He planned Operation Storfang, or Sturgeon Catch. First Bustard Hunt, then Sturgeon Catch. I'm beginning to sense a pattern here with Manstein. So, for Operation Storfang, the attack on Sevastopol, the Germans had the 11th Army, which by June 1942 consisted of four divisions in the 54th Corps and another four divisions in the 30th Corps, plus three divisions from the Romanian Mountain Corps. The Germans brought in several artillery battalions and other units, howitzers, assault guns, and more. I described some of these last episode. This included a lot of heavy artillery, including 65 Sturmgeschutz III, or Stug III self-propelled assault guns, which are heavy cannons mounted on a panzer chassis, but without the rotating turret. The Germans also had nearly 900 medium and heavy guns, two each of the 420mm and 355mm howitzers, and two 280mm railway-mounted guns. For American listeners not used to metric measurements, a 280mm caliber is just over 11 inches. A 420mm gun fires a shell 16 and a half inches in diameter. That's big. As mentioned last week, von Manstein brought in some special equipment for the final assault on Sevastopol. They brought in super heavy mortars, three 600 millimeters, or like two feet across, Carl Geralt guns, two of which were nicknamed Thor and Odin, as well as the 800 millimeter Dora, the biggest gun ever built. These monsters had to move on specially built railroads and fired ammunition, every shell that weighed tons. Literally. Now, when it comes to Panzers, there's a there's some confusion here, and it's easy to understand. So, um, Anthony Tucker Jones, who wrote one of the definitive histories of the war in the East, points out that von Manstein had no Panzers available for this assault on Sevastopol. Now, there were some Panzers earlier. For example. The 22nd Panzer Division, part of the 40th Panzer Corps, was attached to the 11th Army in its initial invasion of Crimea. However, in May 1942, it was sent north to Kharkov, or Kharkiv, and later than that fought at the Battle of Stalingrad. So we'll get to them later. 
Another part of the confusion comes from the way some writers refer to the Stug self-propelled assault guns as tanks, which they resemble, you know, first glance they look like a tank, but they're not tanks. I'm not trying to be too pedantic here, but details are important. Now, as far as the actual fighting goes, it seems that in June 1942, there were some uh, remote-controlled tracked vehicles that were officially part of a panzer unit, or they were called a panzer unit. These vehicles were called Goliath. They were disposable delivery vehicles loaded with explosives. So they had tracks. They didn't have a turret or anything like that. They would just drive up to their objective and explode. They are controlled by remote control, a joystick, connected to the, the unit itself with a long cable. They weren't very effective, and they were kind of expensive because, I mean, you've got to build this vehicle with tracks and, and have this remote control, and it goes and it blows up, so that's it. It's done. Uh, so they weren't effective and they were expensive. The U.S. Army uh, captured some later in the war, looked at them and decided, yeah, this isn't for us. The infantry of the 11th Army were equipped with flamethrowers, mine detectors, hand grenades, and smoke grenades. But here's the thing. The infantry is actually the weak point of this whole force. All those units in the two corps of the 11th Army were weighed down in strength by June 1942. After fighting all the way across Ukraine to Rostov, and then for months down into Crimea, they had been severely depleted. The eight divisions of the two corps were down somewhere down to 75% of their original strength. Some units were down as low as 35%. So to make up for this weakness, the Romanian 7th Mountain Corps was added to the numbers, as well as the 101st Naval Squadron of the Italian Regia Marina, which brought submarines, midget submarines, and fast torpedo boats to aid in the assault and the blockade on the port city. The biggest help, though, came from the Luftwaffe IV, the fourth air fleet, consisting of 600 fighter and bomber airplanes under Colonel General Wolfram von Richthofen, the cousin of the infamous Red Baron of World War I. Ah, so now I'm going to talk about the Soviet defenses against this formidable German force. And luckily, I've just been joined by my invaluable assistant, Ragnar the Destroyer. He's a ragdoll cat. Great big, too. Hello, handsome. All right. So, Sevastopol. It's a formidable target. By 1942, it had long been the main base of the Red Navy's Black Sea Fleet and its land defenses dated back centuries. The city is surrounded by steep, thick-forested hills and mountains. The Russian Empire, in centuries previous, had built defenses, cannons pointed seaward all around the city, 
And the Soviets had modernized and augmented these de uh, over decades with heavy guns and anti-aircraft weapons. There was a series of forts north of Severnaya Bay. Take a look at the map on the website for this episode. There were also concentric rings of fortifications south of the bay. In between all these fortifications were hundreds of bunkers with machine guns and 45mm anti-tank guns. And in between those were thousands of mines and kilometers of barbed wire. Now that was the part that was under the command of the Red Navy. In the harbors of uh, Sevastopol Bay, also the Red Navy had one battleship, two heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, two flotilla leaders, six destroyers, nine minesweepers, one guard ship, and 24 submarines. By the spring of 1942, the Soviets also brought in the first coastal army and stationed it in and around Sevastopol under the command of General Ivan Petrov. This consisted of seven divisions with some 455 artillery pieces and howitzers, 918 mortars, and enough ammunition to last for two weeks. Then there was also a semi-independent coastal artillery force that had 51 guns of various calibers, organized into 12 battalions and three gun batteries. The Red Air Force was a major player as well. In Sevastopol, it had five air regiments, four of which were fighter planes, plus the 3rd Special Aviation Group, the 116th Maritime Reconnaissance Regiment, and the 18th Ground Attack Regiment. And now is when I'm going to take a little break. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. And all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. Thanks for coming back. So here we are, episode 27 of Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. This episode is all about the second German assault on Sevastopol in Crimea. Now, the thing about assaulting Sevastopol, besides all those defenses, is the terrain, the very rough terrain. Lots of hills and ridges, steep ravines and valleys that make roads twist and curl. Just take a look at the city on Google Earth and you'll see what I mean. Even to this day, the roads are twisting and curling. They have no choice. Now, this terrain 
gave the defenders a lot of very defensible positions. All the forts the Soviets set up all around Sevastopol were themselves defended by separate machine gun nests and gun emplacements. So, what did the Germans have to do to take the city? Well, they had to take out first all these surrounding defenses one by one. It fell to the infantry to do this deadly work, the seriously depleted infantry. So in order to accomplish it, they would have to depend on a lot of support from artillery and the Air Force, the Luftflotte. Now, Manstein planned to take the city in three days. To do this, he divided his forces. The 54th Corps of four divisions would attack from the north across the Belbeck River, while the 30th Corps moved up from the south and the Romanian Corps moved in west in the center. Now, I think Manstein must have known that a three-day campaign to capture this city was an ambitious goal. So he actually preceded it with four days of artillery bombardment between the 2nd and the 6th of June, 1942. All those flak and heavy guns that I described over four days fired 42,595 rounds, which was 9% of the Wehrmacht's total munitions in the area. The super heavy railway guns were probably the least effective as they didn't have all that many rounds of those multi-ton shells to, shell, to throw out there. And most of their shots missed their targets. Only Thor, one of those super heavy mortars that fires 600 millimeter or 24 inch shells, hit the gun turret at the Maxim Gorky fort, knocking it out. The 88 millimeter and 105 millimeter artillery guns and the self-propelled Stug 3 assault guns and the Stuka dive bombers were far more effective. The, uh, the 8th Luftflotte Air Corps also conducted heavy air bombardment on Sevastopol itself, starting on June 3rd. Medium bombers dropped 52 tons of bombs on Sevastopol, as well as along the defensive lines north and southeast of the city. Dive bombers attacked the harbor and submarine bases. Air bombardment sank a Soviet naval tanker. But even through this air attack... Three Soviet ships made it to the city during this initial bombardment, bringing 2,785 reinforcements, troops, more troops, as well as fuel, food, and other supplies. Over the next four days, the Luftwaffe dropped 2,264 tons of high explosive and 23,800 incendiary bombs. Then, on the 7th of June, 1942, Manstein ordered the ground attack to begin, starting from the north, across the Belbeck River, the 54th Corps. Infantry advanced behind air and artillery bombardment. Even with this seemingly overwhelming air and artillery support, though, the Soviets exacted a heavy toll of casualties, firing from those forts I described, as well as machine gun nests and artillery positions among the hills, 
and counterattacking repeatedly. On that first day of the ground assault, right, so the 7th of June, the 54th Corps suffered 2,357 casualties, including 340 killed in one day. But on that same one day, the Soviets suffered mightily too, losing three, the equivalent of three full battalions, as well as that important town of Belbek on the river. The intensity of the fighting, and especially the artillery bombardment, was hard to believe. Colonel Ivan Laskin, commander of the 172nd Infantry Division, wrote, quote, For the Soviets, the positions had been hit so hard it was nearly impossible to identify which men were with which units. The terrain was completely altered, and it was impossible to recognize landmarks such as trenches and trails that had been there in the morning. The faces of the soldiers were black from the smoke. An unnamed Soviet soldier described the battle he saw. Everywhere was heavy fighting. On 7th June, the enemy efforts were directed to the right flank of the division against the 747th Rifle Regiment and the 79th Marine Brigade. And on the next day, he fell with full force on the 514th Regiment. The Germans slowly but steadily gnawed into our defenses. They crawled towards our trench in which there were about 15 men and began pelting them with grenades, shouting, Rush kaput! Lieutenant Sergei Burdikov, the platoon commander shouted for the men to attack, and with grenades in hand we rushed forward screaming, Kaput! The Germans moved back, but another group approached the flank. We were down to ten men. Birdikov was killed. The intensity of the battle increased, but in the evening, only three men were left. So that's what's going on on the north side under the 54th Corps. From the south, the 30th Corps and the Romanian Mounted Corps went even slower. They began their attack on the 8th of June, so one day after the 54th started on the north. But for four days, the Soviets in that outer defensive ring around the city of Sevastopol held on, inflicting close to 500 casualties. The Germans and the Romanians did manage to penetrate that first ring of defenses on the Fedukini Heights in a few spots, but the second main defenses on the Sapwin Ridge, take a look at the map, held steady despite 2,500 casualties, including 700 taken prisoner by the Germans. After the first week of this three-day campaign, both attackers and defenders had lost thousands of men and were stretched thin to the breaking point. The Germans in particular were running low on ammunition. Meanwhile, the Soviet Black Sea Fleet kept bringing in supplies, ammunition, and reinforcements from Novorossiysk, a port on the Russian coast opposite Crimea, a port that is playing an important role in 2023 in the, uh, the Russian special military operation war against Ukraine. Anyway, back to this story. Ships from Novorossiysk kept coming through the continual air raids and bombardment, bringing in essential supplies, despite several of them being sunk. To quote from The Defense of Sevastopol, 1941-1942, to 1942, The Soviet Perspective, 
Early in the morning of 10th June, the transport Abkhazia arrived in Sevastopol, all the while being harassed by German aircraft. The bombers dropped 24 torpedoes, but none of them hit the transport. Abkhazia delivered 287 troops, 561 tons of ammunition, aircraft supplies, food, cement, machine guns, and automatic rifles. What Sevastopol needed most, besides soldiers, was ammunition. In the past 10 days, the Soviets had used up to 70,000 shells. The warehouses still held 3.2 tons, but most of that was 45 millimeter shells and naval ammunition. It was 122 millimeter and 107 millimeter shells that were in short supply, as were 85 millimeter mortar bombs and 76 millimeter anti-aircraft shells. The Abkhazia was scheduled to unload during the hours of darkness and leave before daylight, but for unknown reasons the unloading of the ship at the Sukarno dock was delayed. The ship was sent there because the primary unloading pier was blocked by another sunken ship. The transport was unloading when an air raid began. A smoke screen was set up to conceal the operation, but it stopped for unknown reasons, and the ship came into full view of the German pilots. At 0920 hours, several bombs hit Abkhazia, starting a fire. A few minutes later, Junker 87s attacked, scoring direct hits on the ship, and they began to list to starboard. The crew and the men unloading their ship ran to the docks and took shelter in one of the tunnels of the Sukarno arsenal. The ship continued to burn and sank later in the day, but the ammunition aboard did not explode. Abkhazia was the last ship unloaded at Sukarno. Clayton Donnell uh, continues in the same book, quote, In the first 10 days of the month, the Soviets lost about 9,000 men. The Abkhazia sinking left a large number of wounded to be evacuated. The defenders of sectors 3 and 4 were exhausted and badly in need of reinforcements. In the evening, however, the garrison got the welcome news that the 138th Rifle Brigade was on the way to Sevastopol, scheduled to arrive on 12th June on the cruiser Molotov. End quote. The turning point of the battle came on 13th of June, when the Germans finally captured Fort Stalin on the north shore of Savannah Bay. This gave the attackers a huge advantage because it overlooked not only the bay, but it gave them another point from which to fire on Sevastopol, the city itself. In Hitler's War on Russia, Hitler moves east. Author Paul Carell describes it this way. A direct hit on the pillbox embrasure killed 30 men. Ten of the survivors fought like devils. They dragged the bodies of dead comrades to the broken battlements, piling them up like sandbags. End quote. The few survivors surrendered to the Germans, but some of them broke away and carried the wounded toward another of those forts on the North Shore, Lenin. While the Germans could now fire on the Soviets from Fort Stalin, they were running out of ammunition and the Soviet Black Sea Fleet continued through all the bombing to build, bring in more supplies. Even when the Luftwaffe sank a supply ship with over 38 tons of ammunition, divers managed to recover most of it. And the ships also managed to evacuate the wounded from Sevastopol. Soviet naval defenses were in fact critical throughout the battle. 
Not only did Red Navy ships continue to move in and out of the harbors of Sevastopol, bringing in supplies and reinforcements and evacuating the wounded, the guns of the ships and the coastal batteries kept the Germans from landing amphibious forces. On 14th June, the Germans finally made some progress from the south with Stug three self-propelled assault guns, destroying defensive bunkers and cutting the Yalta Highway. By the end of the day, the Germans were at the top of the Fedukini Heights, facing the main defensive line on the Sapun Heights. In the north, on the 16th of June, the German 50th Division broke through toward the North Fort. But as Clayton Donnell says, quote, Despite many setbacks and failures, the resistance of the Soviets completely drained German forces. As of 16 June, the 132nd, 22nd, and 50th Divisions were just a fraction of their original strength. End quote. General Manstein withdrew the 132nd Division, the one that was closest to the coast, and replaced it with troops from occupied Kerch. He wrote in his report, quote, In spite of these hard-won successes, the fate of the offensive seemed to hang in the balance. Yet there was no sign of weakening of the enemy's will to resist, and the strength of our forces significantly decreased. End quote. And, you know, I think that's a good cliffhanger to end this episode as we pass the half-hour mark. So, open your podcaster in two weeks from now for part two of the Battle of Sevastopol, 1942. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. As always, you can find a map of the Battle of Sevastopol on the website for this episode. There are also some historical photos of the weapons and for the situation at the time. Just tune your web browser to beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com and then scroll down to this episode. By the way, you can also listen to this episode on my own website, writtenword.ca and click on the podcast button in the banner. Thank you to all who have supported the podcast or Patreon. You can become a Patreon patron for any amount, and that will give you advanced access to episodes and bonus episodes about the wars that led up to Operation Barbarossa, as well as interesting characters like Konstantin Rokossovsky and Georgi Zhukov. What will I use the money for? Well, for now, until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely, your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. Another way to support the podcast is to follow or subscribe to it on your preferred podcasting app, whether as Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever. And if you could, please consider leaving a rating or a review. That really helps spread the word to others interested in history. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. Or if you have a comment or question, or you just want to share your own thoughts about the Eastern Front, you can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music is composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until we meet again, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.